and we're live and uh, you're here with uh, Duncan this is the property funder podcast now before we start talking to Duncan a uh, couple of a uh, couple of bits of admin first of all uh, I'd like to uh, give thanks to Avermore Capital who are the sponsor of this podcast and without whom uh, we wouldn't be able to speak to Duncan who we've got here today Avermore Capital is a development finance and bridging lender based in London but lending all over England and Wales uh, lending against projects between 250,000 and 15 million pounds. And if you'd like to get in touch with Avermore Capital, uh, please contact www.avermorecapital.com uh, and they'll be very happy to help you. Um, now, um, again, final bit of admin before we speak to Duncan. So Duncan, please bear with us uh, just, just for one moment more. Um, if you're a new visitor to the podcast and you're, you're possibly listening or watching because uh, Duncan's come on, welcome. Um, if you're a returning visitor to the podcast in, our, in, in any of its forms, please like, subscribe and give us a five star rating or review um, so that we can speak to more people like Duncan and we can have a bigger audience uh, that can benefit from people like Duncan's experiences, wisdoms and inspirations. Now, Duncan, thanks for putting up with that. What's your full What's your full name and uh, and, and where do you come from? What's What's the What's your business? Tell us um, for, for those those people who've been under a rock who don't know who you are. Uh, what What are you all about? So um, let's talk about what I'm up to currently. I think it's a good place to start because I'm sure you'll want to delve a little further back. But I'm Duncan Krieger. Uh, my main job is that I am the CEO of TAB, which is a lending business and property finance investment platform that I founded in 2018, having spent a lot of my working career around mortgages and real estate in the UK. I'm born and bred in London, I'm very proud of it, love London and what it's all about. And as far as TAB's concerned, we kind of do... Um, a few different things. Um, so first and foremost, we lend money secured on property. Um, we offer 10-year mortgages and also short-term bridging loans and quite a wide variety in between, with uh, including uh, refurbishment loans and development finance. So there is quite a lot of crossover, Mike, and obviously um, you introduced your business before. Um, it's kind of similar themes, so we cover a lot of, of those types of loans. Um, we also allow investors to invest directly into those types of loans. And really excitingly, something I'd like to talk, talk more about today is fractional investment in real estate. So we have lent just under half a billion pounds since we started in 2018. Um, and we're busy trying to improve our, our funding um, so that we can be appealing to a wider variety of the market and also super excited about opening up real estate investments to a much broader range of people than has previously been possible, certainly um, from what I've seen. There's a very quick whistle stop tour. Yeah, and um, having seen some of your announcements uh, probably in the last couple of days as well around going into long term mortgages, it was certainly one of the things I was going to ask you about and, and talk about the motivations of it. And, and maybe also some of the pitfalls uh, as you know, as someone in the as someone in the industry and owning a co-owning a, a business that, that does something similar. But um, I mean, I was always I was very excited to I was very excited to to have you come on. Um, I think that we we've met quite a few times previously I, you even interviewed me at a past fp show uh probably one of my first podcast appearances and which i enjoyed thoroughly um and um 
yeah, I've, I've always liked your energy and, and, and the cut of your jib. And I think that, um, you know, repeat listeners or repeat, uh, repeat listeners of the podcast or repeat viewers of the podcast um, will probably share that enthusiasm and excitement for, for your coming on. So uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that, that, you're, that you're here and you're talking to us um, because I think we're going to have a really, really good chat. Um, I think one of the things that that I'm particularly interested to talk about before we go and talk about what you're doing with Tab is actually to talk about your entrepreneurial journey and and how you got here, um, particularly because of what you achieved at a very young age. And you know, a, a lot of people, a lot of our audience are are aspiring entrepreneurs and they want to make it in business. And I think that and a lot of them will be quite young. And I think they'll take <laughs> a lot of inspiration from someone like yourself. So if you're able to just share with our audience what your story looked like you know from from being kind of a you know a teenager a spotty teenager to to before you set up tab and why you set up tab um love to hear that story and, and how it came about yeah i mean you know i've been asked this question a lot recently and i've also been sort of looking back very recently over the amount of companies that i have been involved with um including a lot of things that didn't go according to plan. And then also you start to hone your understanding of what you're looking for, where you can add value. I think just to talk about entrepreneurship for a minute, um, you know, and even going back to my kind of school days, I've never been good at being told what to do. I've been much more the type of person to learn from my own mistakes and then it be down to me to make sure I don't make those mistakes again. And I think that is, if I had to kind of summarize it um, in a kind of short format, it would be that some people just aren't cut out for working for someone else. And it's not because I think I can do it better or because I've got great ideas that nobody else has, but I find it easier to energize myself to do something um, that I really want to or that I choose to do rather than someone telling me to do it, even if it's um, for the better or the worse. So. Yeah, I guess I've always been entrepreneurial. I'll kind of tell you a few quick stories that spring to mind. Um, but even at, even in my school days, I remember teachers kind of saying to me and to my parents, look, it's probably better we just kind of let him go and do his own thing. Because I was very, very headstrong about wanting to get out of school as soon as possible. Um, <clears throat> one thing I should say is I'm not scared of working hard. Um, you know, I absolutely love going to work every day. I work extremely hard. I don't really had much time off in the last 20 years um I don't switch my phone off never have done um I'd love I'd rather keep up a little bit every day than um sort of take a two-week holiday and then come back and catch up then um but even from a very young age I've always looked at the world in a way where it's like well how did they do that and how could I have done it better and I think possibly one of my very first entrepreneurial kind of ideas was that I was on holiday with my friends um, kind of like the first time I'd been away without my parents went away with all my friends went on a beach holiday and there was an alloy wheel shop in Tenerife or somewhere right next to the beach and between me and one of my friends Adam we somehow managed to buy five sets of alloy wheels and ship them back to the UK um, it took about five months for them to arrive and we stored them in my parents garage and I don't think we I think we sold one set but the other four <laughs> sets got dumped several years later and 
even just talking about it now, I learned, learned several lessons from that experience, you know, do your research, um, calculate all your costs. I didn't, it wasn't obvious to me at that time, I wanted to drive cars and you know, I liked them. It wasn't obvious to me at that time that different wheels had different sizes, different bolts, which they would fit different cars and they wouldn't. And, you know, all of those things sort of started to hit me when we'd, I'd spent my life savings on, on these. And I, I think there is a bit of a theme there, I guess. You know, the point is that I've always been searching to do something for myself and be the master of my own destiny. And I'm very much um, at least there, if not even more there now. Uh, well, I, but you know, what I love about the story is that I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly how old you were then, but you um, you were you were fearless. Yeah, for know, sure. You, and, and I guess is that you're fearless and you were willing, you wanted to try something. And I guess. I, you know, and I guess we'll, we'll again, we're going to talk about the areas that you're expanding into, but you seem to have that a fearlessness and a willing willingness to try things. Um, I just don't understand. I, don't, I mean, I've never been able to take somebody saying, no, you can't do that. You know, it's never really registered in my brain. Yeah. Um, that somebody says, no, you can't. It means no, you can't. And I shouldn't try. Um, I would only try to do something that I think is of value um, and that I would be proud to stand behind. There's nothing I've ever done in my career where I look back and think, oh, that's cringeworthy and I hope nobody ever uncovers it. I think I've got a very good grounding. Um, you know, my morals, I believe, are, are always in the right place. I always try to do the best and that involves kind of facing up to things when things don't go according to plan. But I'm sort of typically the type of guy that if somebody tells me, no, you can't, then I'll just find someone else. Um, who says, yes, I can. And that, that's certainly been a theme throughout my career. The bigger your ideas and the bigger the vision is, the more people will queue up to tell you that it's not a good idea or you, they don't think you should do it or they don't think you can. And um, I have always been a super positive person and, you know, kind of been in the nicest possible way. It just has never fazed me what other people think. I've been happy to sort of forge my own path. Well, I mean, I, I think this some great lessons there for for any aspiring entrepreneur and even those of us who are uh more more long in the tooth entrepreneurs as well um you know it's just it sounds to me like your advice to anyone would be anyone who wants to get in, into business or get into entrepreneurship is just get get stuck in give it a go and and see what happens and if if something doesn't work out go in a different direction yeah and also now as well you know I often get um <clears throat> Um, people approaching me all the time. I had a meeting yesterday about a new business venture, somebody who's followed my journey, starting something new. And I think what always comes up is if I should do it, I shouldn't. And then when when's a good time to do it? And my answer is always now. Um, you don't want to wait. There is, there's not really any reasons that I've heard presented to me why doing this great idea is such a fantastic idea, but you shouldn't do it now. You should do it sometime in the future because you just have to get on with it. Um, on the flip side, I've heard so many people that said, oh, I had a great idea once and, you know, I could have done that and I should have done that. But you don't hear that from people that have done it and have tried it. You will hear it didn't go according to plan and I, um, you know, it didn't work out. But what you won't hear is I had a good idea and I never did it. Um, I think that would be, that's terrible. Well, I, I always think about, Gary Vaynerchuk always talks about, you know, it's, it, loads of people can have great ideas, but, you know, the people who are really successful, you know, the, lots of people will have the same idea. It's who can execute on that 
best and who can get the timing right you know yeah, i think that's I, I think that's that's the key and um you know someone who's going to someone's going to bore you down the pub about all of these great ideas that they had but they but you know this happened or that happened or they never or they just didn't they just didn't do it well yeah you, know, you, you say well, well well good for you but you know you you only get one shot at life you didn't uh, take why, the risk you go for it yeah you didn't take the risk and you didn't get the reward um obviously again albeit you didn't have the downside you know that risk and reward has always been something i felt quite comfortable weighing up and to me i always look at what's the worst case scenario um you know if you're in a job and you want to start a new business um but you can't for this reason and that reason what is the worst that can happen worst that happens is it's a massive failure you lose some money it doesn't work out and you have to go back and get your job again um which most which to most people is available and then to me there's literally no downside the kind of worst case scenario is you end up with exactly what you had before you started um, i think people have a fear of failure um, they don't want to be the guy that failed. I don't have that fear. It doesn't um, it doesn't compute in my brain. Um, but if your worst case scenario is you're back to where you started, then to me, there is literally zero risk. And if the risk is much, much greater than that, then you need to consider another way. You know, how do I do the same thing without taking so much risk, getting investment, bringing a partner on board, developing my plan further? Um, seeking advice or honing my product or whatever it may be but there, there are ways to limit your downside and so that's the way my brain works yeah I, I mean I had a um I had to do a, some work with a psychologist when I was finishing university and um we, we drilled down to basically why I'd always end I'd always end up with kind of B you know I'd always end up with kind of B grades or sort of B slash C grades uh, at the time and he, he boiled it down to it was a, there was a, a fear of fa fear of failure was the reason I was kind of getting pass marks. But there, there's also a thing called fear of success. And I was also suffering from a fear of success. And I think that you, you can we can talk. We often talk about fear of failure, but I think there's also people who are who are actually afraid of being successful as well, um, because I think success also means change and also requires a, a degree of gr personal growth that they maybe are unwilling to go through. Yeah, you, I mean. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, what you're describing is just a fear of something um, yeah. or what I would potentially call an excuse. Um, it's, you know, I'm a sort of very direct and certainly not saying my way is the best way. And I don't think when I have these conversations, it should be, well, this is, you know, my advice, go out and do it right now. It's more a kind of insight into the way that I see things. Um, but I think a f fear of something is what holds people back. And what I've seen throughout my career is that typically when when you let your guard down, that fear that you had doesn't actually exist. And that's why I call it an excuse. It's a kind of a thing that might happen if I do this, but that's not taken into account the other things that might happen. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there are loads of excuses and loads of reasons why people shouldn't start. And a lot of them could be very legitimate, um, but a lot of them are just something again that i've never felt i'm a super positive guy i basically am extremely lucky that i'm the type of person that looks outside in the morning and i think the sun's shining where somebody else could look at it and think it's cloudy and dark and gray um you know like physically and mentally i am aware um from family members and friends that i've grown up with over the years that have struggled with things that um you know i really just don't struggle with. I just look at the positive side of life. 
Um, and I use that to my advantage. So I tried to get everybody around me to look at that, um, to look through that lens. And it's, it's definitely, these things are not just applied to business at all. In fact, I would say completely the opposite. I think you, it's very difficult to have one mindset at home and one mindset at work. And one thing I've always tried to do is wear my heart on my sleeve and I would act exactly the same person, wearing the same things and using the same language if I'm sitting um, with my parents at dinner or my friends or private equity firm um, in a presentation. I, I hope and I try to be authentic. Uh, it's just, I, I don't see um, why you need to sort of make these differences between I need to act in this certain way if I'm going to go down that route is being authentic and yeah, I think my positive outlook on life definitely helps that. Yeah well I, I, I think authenticity is uh, is very important and um, yeah I'd, I'd be lying if I said I was always the same with everyone all the time I think um, you know I think my for my own part I have a bit of a chameleon type character which probably helps helps me in lots of situations, but in other in other aspects, it, it doesn't. I, I wanted to just touch back on suitability for entrepreneurship because I, I can see you like me are what I would call I would deem unemployable, uh, and it, it obviously in a good way for for ourselves certainly. And um, I I don't want to say you call I, I don't know I don't know if you would agree with it. You, you know I, I'm just repeat back what you said, which is that you were never good at being told what to do. I, I would whether I would question whether you would whether you would stray into agreeing that, that maybe you were a bit of a non-conformist as well. Uh, but I think also being kind of not being so compliant and not being so conformist probably helps probably helps one be an entrepreneur. Whereas if you're if you are compliant, you're probably not less less naturally inclined to be an entrepreneur and more probably more suited to being a, an employee. And certainly, you know, you can get a lot of people make the wrong choice about whether they should be uh, entrepreneurs or not. I mean, I, I don't think I'm compliant. Um, I do think I um, like to think more freely. I guess it's just important to note that there are different ways to do the same thing. So, you know, just because I, I'm not saying when I said previously, I'm exactly the same person I would be. And, and I feel like I'm sort of in the scenarios where I'm meeting all these different people and having different conversations. I feel like I'm as kind of... Um, similar in every single environment as anyone I've ever seen. I mean, you often see people go into a meeting with like a, you know, different body language or, you know, whatever it may be. I, I think, you know, it's about kind of honing your skills and using them to your advantage. And, you know, I'm definitely not a conformist. I, um, I feel like there is a better way to do some things. And I'm, again, not always right, but I'm always searching for, can I add value? Can I do something differently? And I think, you know, it's become different in employment in that people are empowered to kind of make change, certainly in big organisations. For me, I don't want to micromanage my team, um, 43 people in my team to do things the way I would do. In fact, I very much believe in allowing people to do things in their own way and um, just kind of highlighting what you're good at and what you're bad at and trying to play to your strengths and, and bring people around you to better you and to better the delivery of your message. Um, but I, I think they are very, very different parts. And a lot of people that sort of say they're entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs maybe sort of ban the term around 
differently. And I think if you've got a startup idea and somebody is investing in you to pay your salary for two years, um, I, I would kind of call that more of an employee um, than um, an entrepreneur. Um, I think an entrepreneur is someone who really takes risk and that they physically have to make something work in order to um, to live or to succeed. Um, so I guess my point is there's kind of different levels, um, but my thing is about trying to do things differently. And I think it is, you know, I think I feel disruptive, but I don't, I think that can come across as, a, you know, if you're disruptive at school, that's definitely a negative. Um, if you're disruptive in, in the business world or in a market that you operate in, it's kind of seen as a positive. And I think there's a kind of balance between the two, um, which is that I want to be disruptive, but I want to be disruptive in the right way. Um, and I don't want to be so headstrong about being destructive that I, or disruptive or destructive, um, that I sort of missed the whole purpose of what I was doing there in the first place. I, I don't know if that sort of makes sense or answers your question. Yeah, of course. Uh, just going back to the point around failure, but do, um, yeah, I think very much in the US, there's, a, there's almost a celebration of entrepreneurial failure. Do you feel like in the UK and, and in Europe more generally, um, we, we look down on entrepreneurial failure too much? Um, yeah, I mean, I, that I, acts as a barrier to 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 entrepreneurship and 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 people, you know, taking business risks. Yeah, definitely. Look, I see failure as a positive. That is actually a positive word to me. Failing to me means I have learned something that I'm not going to do again. That is going to give me a better chance of being successful. Um, the reason that I have some successful businesses is because I have the battle scars um, of those failures and had those failures not occurred, however difficult they were to handle at the time, I almost definitely wouldn't be in the position that I'm in today with all of the things that are current and active in my life. Um, yes, there is a difference. The kind of American dream is kind of a sort of something I've picked up over the years. But, you know, if somebody does something successful in America, it's like the general attitude is, um, hey, man, great. Good news for you. Go do it. Live the American dream. Um, in this country, it's like, oh, well, he's probably cheating or he's done something wrong or he's, uh, you know, there's always a kind of negative spin on it um, in this country. I, I think it does hold people back, but I think the people that are um, going to rise through it will rise through it anyway. Um, I think the UK is, is absolutely tiny compared to the US. When people compare the UK to the US, I mean, it's hard to fathom the difference in size between population and opportunity in America. Um, but there is a ridiculous opportunity in the UK as well. And if you surround yourself with people or you consume social media or you watch the news about how not to do things and who failed, then you sort of tend to gravitate towards that. And if you watch the success stories and you listen to the right podcasts and you read the right news outlets, then I think you get sort of um, serve things that are more positive and give you the impetus to do so. Yeah, I suppose that also that the more fear there is around entrepreneurship, those of us like yourself and me, um, yourself and myself, who who are willing to go out there and take risks and and you know grab the opportunities with both hands, there's there's more opportunity for for, for people like us because there's less competition. I think in the states, if we were in the states, for example, the attitude and the competition would be would be very different because people's mindsets and attitudes are just aren't, aren't the same. And certainly. Yeah, to put that in a slightly different way, I, I feel like I need all of these different personalities around me for Tab to succeed. Um, so I, I need the postman who's happy to work for Royal Mail for 25 years to pick up our letters and drop them off where they need to be. And I'm certainly not 
championing that he should be doing something different with he or she should be doing something different with their lives um work for your pension build up to retirement age take some time out travel the world i mean in some respects that's very appealing to me you know there, there are some bits that are appealing i need people that are going to come to work in different roles from admin to tech um for their paycheck and for you know job satisfaction and potential growth again i need those people to be engaged and happy with their choice in life and their path um, because just because i've got some vision i want to be disruptive it doesn't mean i can do it all on my own um you know i've been good but getting better at highlighting my weaknesses and trying to fill those voids and one thing that is not going to help is filling those voids with more people like me so again this is not like this is the way you should do it but more be honest with yourself about what you want from your life be honest about with yourself about the level of risk um, and therefore the level of reward that you expect in your life and then choose your own path and be happy with it and if you go some years down the line and you want to pivot to use your word that I use all the time or you want to make a change then then change um, people will say what the hell are you doing you're leaving a job you're leaving your family you're changing career path they'll they'll queue up to tell you what they think but if you're honest with yourself about what you're looking for which is, will undoubtedly be different today to what it was 20 years ago then go do it um, and that's the kind of attitude that I'm trying to to surround myself with. I, I love I loved your comments around empowering your team. Uh, I, I've recently I've recently read a couple of books on this, which very much fits with my own personal ethos. Um, Trust and Inspired by Stephen Covey and Turn the Ship Around by L. David Marquet. You know, and L. David Marquet was talking about putting in place a leader leader uh, leader leader model. Uh, you know, rather than a leader follower model, which is kind of your traditional man managing, managing, not leading. Whereas you know, I think, you know, what you're talking about and what what I espouse anyway, in terms of values is from a from a leadership standpoint is leadership, not management. Um, <clears throat> notwithstanding that, how do you as a leader of a, of, of a team and by the looks of it, a very a large and growing team now? Um, how do you put in place guardrails so that so that the team can the team can make mistakes that they can learn from but aren't making mistakes that are what Zahir and I would term we call it a five-year fatal i.e a mistake that would ultimately could ultimately lead to the business failing within five years as a result of of that action or inaction yeah I mean I've got a few different ways to answer this question um I can tell you for sure I take ultimate responsibility so I think one of the first things I would say in response to that is that if something goes wrong it's my fault um, if it's the person, if I've made a mistake myself, it's my fault. If the person that I have empowered to make those decisions gets it wrong, it's also my fault. And if the people that they empower to make important decisions turns out to reflect badly on them and in turn on me, um, I am prepared to stand up and say I fucked up. Um, there is just no other way, in my opinion. Um, you cannot have a kind of, I think culture is super, super important. And to me, one of the ways to embody that is to make sure that I take ultimate responsibility for the decisions that I make, even indirect or direct. Um, another answer is um, the same as I would say in my personal life and my business life, and I think it's possibly the best piece of advice that I ever received is surround yourself with good people. Surround yourself with other people that are prepared to have the same attitude as you, which is that if my team doesn't do something that is fatal, stand up and be counted. 
and don't, and when you come back, make sure you come back stronger um, than you did before. I'm obviously not talking about thieving and stealing and cheating because the, those things to me are just a kind of, um, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure someone doesn't do something that's illegal or, you know, and hopefully I put the checks and balances in place to make sure that there isn't a single way that can happen. But you've got to be alert to those sorts of things as well. But if someone makes a mistake, I think it would be very hard to argue that it's completely their fault. And more so, I would be the first person to walk to the front and say, look, this is on me. Uh, I gave the wrong part person the wrong responsibility. And, you know, is it going to be if, if a decision is that important that it is business fatal? Um, and I, th I think that's a pretty, pretty catastrophic result. Um, then be damn sure you have the opportunity to have a say in it before it happened. Um, and if you did, then, you know, to my point, then you are responsible. And, um, you know, as long as you've done something that you could just because you, you know, things haven't gone to plan even to the point where a business has failed, doesn't mean you shouldn't be prepared to walk around the streets and get on the podcast and talk about it. I mean, that's the failure that I'm talking about. You know, if you're not careful, those are reasons not to do those things in the first place. Don't shoot for the stars in case you hit an asteroid. I mean, that's where that sort of failure mentality starts to trickle in, in my view. Yeah, I think being open and honest about failure is uh, failures is a, is a really good thing uh, and, and actually something that I'm, I'm quite keen on quite keen on myself and frankly I think we we you know people you know we end up with this sort of survivorship bias when we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs I mean I guess we you know some of some of this some of this podcast series is is a is a direct beneficiary of that right so but some so many of basically all of the best lessons that we learn are, are ultimately a, a, the result of our failures not necessarily of our of our successes um, you know, if you're constantly successful, what are you actually learning? You're not you don't necessarily grow if you're if if you're constantly successful. Um, yes, I mean that's maybe maybe that's a bit of a generalisation. It's easy to say. It's easy to yeah. say, but it is actually true. I mean, it, it's yeah. as simple as that, in my view. I mean, I stood up in front of my entire business at the beginning of last week, and I did a whole presentation on. 2024 and beyond where are we going how are we going to get there and i and i started with what did we do well last year and what could we have done better i mean you know failures for want of a better word did we do enough of this did we do enough of that are things in the right place are you know are our products right is our communication right is our culture right it's um, you know another way to look back and think everything you should be able to do better I can't think of anything in our business that we could, that we have nailed so much so that we couldn't do it better. And I think another way of saying that is where did we fail? You know, it's a kind of subtle line. It's how can we improve rather than where did we fail? I, I think also creating the right culture and environment that, that encourages us within our organisations to talk about failure and where we failed. Um, you know, I think where... I think if you create a culture within a business where, you know, where it's patently obvious where the failings of the business of the business might have been over a, a quarter, a month, a quarter, a year, whatever the period of time is, and yet um, you've got reports that are still trying to talk up the role that they did, or talk about talk up what the department did, or or just more generally within the business how well how well the business did, or the things that the business did well, without actually being being honest and and acknowledging where failures lie 
um, speaks to a weakness in in the general culture of that business. You've got to be we've got to be able and the leader and the leadership and the leadership. You've got to be able to have that kind of conversation um, where it's okay that people have to feel that it's okay to put your hand up and go, like you said, we fucked up. This didn't go well. This this is what we need to do better because you're never going to develop and grow as a business if you can't have that kind of conversation. And I think the alternative is dangerous. You know, I you know I want an, an attitude in the office that says I'll put my hand up because I don't understand the question that I've been asked. Not yeah 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 fine I'll do it I'll do it I'll do it and then find out in six weeks you haven't because actually you couldn't. You know you should be able to say I think that sounds like a great idea but if you want me to do that I'm going to have to go and upskill myself because I don't know. Um, nobody's expected to know everything especially in a growing business for entrepreneurs things change rapidly um you know look at the years that we've been through and i'm not going to sort of spout all the ups and downs and things we've had to navigate but a lot of them i have never experienced before and i shouldn't have had prior knowledge of how to deal with them um and you know you have to learn on your feet um so if the attitude is we've always done it this way and we don't think it's a good idea and we don't want to change you will get left behind uh, undoubtedly um so i you know i really do believe that there is only one way and it has always worked for me and i do need to improve at it and if i continue with all of those things you know being a better version of myself building a better business making better decisions day after day after day um then in 100 days if i can improve one percent every day then i'll be 100 percent better yeah well i mean listen the the compound effects of, of even a 0.1 percent improvement day on day uh is phenomenal so fundamentally who can't who can't improve 0.1 percent every day i mean well yeah I've, I've tried actually i've tried i've tried it it's, it's remarkably difficult across across a lot of different areas but yeah certainly uh certainly if you focus on one particular thing for example then you, you just talked about you just talked about, i think people were hard on themselves i mean you just talked about reading books you know specific books that you've started reading and why there will be things that you've read in those books that it might take a year or two or ten for them to become relevant or for it to click um but they wouldn't have ever clicked had you not read them so you, you might i think people are hard on themselves you know doing something um other than lying in bed all day with your duvet under your head gives you an opportunity to improve somewhere if you're sort of alert to it and you're open to someone tells you you've done a shit job doesn't mean that you, the whole world's come down it means that how can i make sure that i don't have that feeling again um i think those one percent are to be gained everywhere all over the place um if you look for them I, I I do agree with that completely. I do agree with that completely. Um, look, let's let let's let's get into your story because I think yeah. and and then we can talk and because that'll then lead us into to tab and the, the exciting things that you're doing. Um, you you've been in specialist lending for almost twenty years, according to your LinkedIn, anyway. So can you just talk tell us your story as to how, you know, you your life pre-tab or your career pre-tab yeah. and and then what what prompted you to set tab up and, and yeah I mean I, I left school super early after teacher said let him go eventually everyone gave in my first job was in a state agency um working in old street for a firm called urban spaces and in fact I was just talking to one of my colleagues before and saying how long it can take some relationships to come back around um, and my first ever boss, Alex, is now somebody that we work with closely and we sort of lend to and invest in. And, and, and just that's the kind of message around just being consistent and being authentic that these things can take a long time to come back. 
Um, became an estate agent. I, I had a job. Uh, wasn't very good at, at being told what to do, but I was very hungry to learn. And I immediately fell in love with real estate and property. And my entrepreneurial head was saying, "Okay, so you can buy that for five hundred thousand. You can spend five hundred thousand on it. It might be worth one and a half million. I mean, literally the first properties that I was walking into, kind of new builds and refurbs around Old Street." And then this burning question, even at that early age, was, well, OK, well, how would I get the money to do that? And even if I I had all the money, would I use it for this or would I use it for something else? Would I spread it further? Would I borrow money? How does that work? Because I never learned any of that at school. And to this day, it absolutely baffles me that people can come out of education for you know, 15 years worth of education and still not have a clue how to calculate what an interest rate um, is on a mortgage or the difference between different types of debt, personal loans, uh, credit cards, mortgages, uh, baffles me. I, th I think it's a fundamental problem with setting people up for the reality of life. But um, I left that job when the um, the owner of the business, who's somebody else that I still know really, really well, um, Greg's called me into his office and said, well, I'm going to take away your guaranteed commission and I'm going to put you on a, a different package. And I said, well, that's not what we agreed. And he said, look, I think you're ready to go alone. Try to dress it up as a positive. And I said, look, I'm doing everything I agreed to. If you're not doing everything you agreed to, I'm leaving. Um, and he said, well, that's my position. And we shook hands and I left. Um, because I didn't think it was fair and I didn't think it was right. And I've tried to pick up these little lessons all the way throughout my career. And if I said something to an employee at the beginning, then I would damn well hope to stand on what I said and I would hope them to do the same. So I left um, that and I did sort of floated around real estate sort of at a very, very, very junior level. And then my father was a mortgage broker um, I'd never really had much interest in what he'd been doing up until then. In fact, he was a financial advisor and he'd just set up his own business. And he asked me, he said, look, if you're not, if you haven't got a job, why don't you come to the office and help me fill in some forms? And I went to work for his business, which was called Morgan Sterling. Um, and I, the first qualification that I ever got, um, that I ever had got, and still probably to this day, was that I qualified as a mortgage advisor and it really really interested me i wanted to understand how um how to access capital basically and that gave me a platform to start seeing loads of different people and i learned some incredible lessons i remember my, my dad saying look you need to sit with this client fill in mortgage application form and i was looking down the list thinking it says one of these questions is what's your salary and i said i'm not really sure how to ask that question he said okay i'll, I'll teach you so i said okay he said it's like this. You say, what's your salary? And then <laughs> someone will answer. And I thought, OK, fine, I'll try that. And sure enough, I started asking what I considered to be difficult questions um, and people would just answer. And I met people from all walks of life, um, from first time buyers who were being introduced by state agents to landlords who had multiple properties. Um, and I enjoyed it, to be honest. It fit well with me. Um, I love the thrill of doing deals and closing deals. And I started to arrange some bridging loans with um, what was at the time Lancashire Mortgage Corporation. Um, met a guy called Mark Goldberg and Mark um, was really good to me as a snotty kid who knew nothing about anything in the industry. 
and um, I started placing some business with him where it was appropriate. And I kind of had this idea um, that I wanted to do some lending myself. And I said to my dad, you know, I want to start a lending business. And he said, you can't start a lending business without any money. And I said, well, how did Halifax start? And he said, look, you know, I really don't have time for these sort of crazy questions. You know, they're a bank and how they started is, you know, just a, not a way that I'm used to thinking. Um, and he's told these stories before in front of me. And I, I guess this is the sort of answer to it all. And I said, well, I'm going to start a lending company. Um, and I'm going to, the first thing that we did, I started a company called West One Loans, um, literally registered the company myself for £12 on on um, company's house. In fact, the company was registered as West One Loan Limited. And the reason it was that is because I was talking to one of my dad's um, introducers and I said, I'm going to start my own lending company and Halifax lend at 5% fixed for five years. And these guys lend at one and a half percent a month. So I'm going to do it that way because I think it would be easier for me to convince people to come on the journey. And he said, why don't you call it West One Loan? You've already got a number plate, which is something my dad had splashed out on and bought a number plate, which was W11OAN. And he had that plate and I thought it was a great name. And from that moment on, we were West One Loans. And I spoke to Mark and said, I want to do this. And he said, come up for lunch and I'll show you how it all works. And I went up for lunch to meet him. Um, by then, I'd been joined by Stephen Wasserman, who was my best friend at school who'd gone away to get a politics degree and done a year of traveling and while I'd been hosting sort of jobs around the state agency and I sat down with him in my flat in Watford and said look I want to start a lending company I think this is how it's going to go and he said I'll you know I'll come and do it with you and I'll give it a shot for six months see if we can make it work before I go into the city and get a job. Um, we went to see Mark together and Mark said if you're going to do it these are the valuers you need. These are the lawyers you need. The loan to value is the most important thing you're ever going to learn. Um, and I still use those lawyers and those valuers. And I still speak to Mark very frequently. And um, the first loans we did all, all the way back then when we didn't have a single penny of capital to our names was um, what I would call branded lending. Um, so Mark basically gave me permission to photocopy my logo onto their terms and um, I could present ourselves as West One Loans and the loans would we then effectively apply for a Together Loan or a Lancashire Loan exactly the same way and we sort of started to tell customers that we were a lender. Um, you know there, 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 there's a lot um, I know I said I had an hour it will run on longer Mike but this is definitely a podcast of its own or a dinner of its own at some point I mean the trials and tribulations of trying to start a business that you know nothing about um, it was really difficult it was really fun it was really rewarding um, and my sort of attitude when people say how did you do it you know West One most people listening I assume will will know it's gone on to be one of the largest non-banking financial institutions in the country um, I obviously played a significant role in getting it there. But one lesson I've learned is that that business was just fine without me. Um, if anything, it's kind of grown way beyond my expectations in the very beginning. Um, and I think I was sort of, you know, again, there's a lot there, but people ask me how I got there. And the answer is one good loan at a time. You know, it wasn't about how we're going to get from a hundred thousand to a hundred million it was you know this is working let's tweak it let's let's keep going let's push ourselves um to aspire to be better 
and um, and West One was a huge success, and I really, really enjoyed every minute of it, and it sort of helped where I'd had some sort of bought some alloy wheels and tried to sell some calculators by mail order and all sorts of weird and wacky things. This felt like something that could actually build me a future. Um, and I saw that business through from inception through to the first private equity back sale in 2014, um, at which point I was still, you know, in my 20s, having originated hundreds of millions of loans and managing 100 million of private capital. Um, and I stayed as managing director of that business for two years after that sale. And that, that was a very sharp reminder that I'm not a good employee. You know, it was being honest with myself and saying, like, am I good at this? Yes, I think I am. Um, are we doing a good job? Yes. Am I enjoying it? And am I the best version of myself? Absolutely not. Um, and it was a very, very difficult decision to leave the business. Uh, I rang the CEO of that business and the first time in my whole life I could remember, well, apart from school, but first time in my working life, I could remember pulling my duvet over my head and thinking, I don't want to go to work today. Um, I rang my CEO and said, we need to meet tonight. And he said, you're leaving, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, bye, we'll figure it out. Um, and we figured it out. We shook hands and we did a deal. Um, and I left a lot of capital on the table but it was the best decision of my life. I mean, my life was transformed immediately after. And, um, you know, sort of staying true to being authentic, as I talked about, um, I just valued my own freedom. I wanted to go back myself and do it again. Um, and I didn't want to pretend that I was happy and I was enjoying going to work every day. Um, so much had changed that I wasn't on board with and I was being asked to do things that I felt were kind of not exploring my full potential and I voted with my feet and it was not many people thought it was a good idea to be honest with you um so you know that's helped shape a lot of you know amazing experience I left with my head held high had a fantastic reputation um and I think that definitely helped me I, I had non one thing I agreed to was that I would not compete with the business for two years um, which is a very, very long time. So no broking, no lending for two years. Um, and at the time, I sort of made peace with the fact that I may never do this again. So I'm free to do whatever I want in the anything you could possibly think of, just not loans or, or um, just not loan related. Um, and that was amazing, to be honest. It was eye opening. It meant that I could finally lift myself up, lift my head up and sort of look around and think, what do I enjoy? What do I like? And what do I want to do? Um, so yeah, that's a kind of significant part of my story. Um, in between then and tab, I, um, I, for the first time invested in someone else's business. So up until then, I'd only ever started things by myself. Um, and I bought a majority stake in a business called premier block management, and I still own a significant stake of that business today. And it was the first time, you know, that I'd bought somebody else's business and I was now walking into the boardroom, throwing my, my weight around. And what I realized is that a lot of the skills that you obtain are transferable to other businesses and to other purposes. So, you know, the structure that I had learned from being a private equity owned business 
taught me a lot about how to help another business get into that sort of shape if they're looking for a for an exit or to grow a sales team or to budget um well or to build a marketing team and where to invest and where not to so i massively enjoyed that experience actually i mean i've just stood down from the board after seven years just because i simply want to dedicate more of my time and resource to to tab but i've left that business in an unbelievable position unrecognizable from the business it was um and gary the managing director of that business has um has built a fantastic business that i'm very proud of and um all the while the kind of days and months are ticking away i'm answering my phone to people every day saying no i can't help you i can't help you i can't help you because that's how my phone had always run for loans and property and mortgages um, and then a day came where i answered my phone and i looked at my calendar and i thought actually i probably can help you um i'm free i did not spend two years planning my next big lending business and far from it i didn't think about it once as far as i was concerned i was out of the game um but i had this idea about something i wanted to do and it was to whereas west one had been about allowing investors to invest in loans and to get a share of the income which was the only way i could fund loans going all the way back to the beginning didn't have any money to lend met some people who said i'll oh, put the money up if i get 75 percent of the interest you can keep 25 percent um, and it meant that we could earn 25 percent of these bridging loans along the way and that our investors would um, would earn an income um, and I wanted to kind of use that knowledge that I'd gained to kind of what I describe as open up property investments to more people. If we could do property investment more like the way that I had done loans, then I think it would be appealing to many more people. And because obviously technology had moved into a different stratosphere since I started West One to starting Tab, um, I felt there was an opportunity to use tech and leverage off these sort of crowdfunding sites and those sorts of things that I'd sort of seen pick up some momentum but not really be effective and that the idea of tab was born where we would do fractional ownership we would buy real estate on behalf of our investors instead of lending against it they would own a share of it and if you own 10% of that property you will get 10% of the income and we will take a small management fee and that is something that I'm even more passionate about now than I was when those early sort of ideas started to form some time ago so there's quite a lot there um for you to unpack <laughs> i'll probably pause for breath yeah that's, that's probably a that's probably a great great opportunity i mean look the um we we founded abemore in 2015 so you you'd already sold uh you already sold out you were still in west one at the time west one had i, I think west one and abemore have uh, ended up becoming kind of very much peers in the in at least in the areas that Avonmore operate within, but West One always was already a, a kind of behemoth at the time, or at least in our minds, was a significant operator. And for you to have done that from such an early age was, um, yeah, was 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 nothing short of remarkable. Frankly, um, obviously, uh, you mentioned Mark Goldberg, obviously a very big influence in your career, and I guess you'll be eternally grateful to him for the help that he gave you um certainly you know there, there are dozens i suppose of, of lenders not just in the northwest but across the country who who have the same who've had the same sort of experience i i, I did actually get a phone call from mark in the early days of Avonmore, but 
for some reason I think the call, the conversation he had to he had to ring off the conversation and then we never we never picked it back up again and I suppose the rest is history but um certainly you know I know that together are uh, have have been supportive of many um burgeoning lenders like like you were at the time so um full credit to to them for being so supportive of the specialist finance industry in the bridging bridging world um yeah and I'm I mean, making my business to pay it forward yeah. Um, there's literally nobody that, you know, I'm an open book when it comes to people wanting to come and pick my brains where there is literally zero upside to me, but me wanting to pay it forward. And I definitely think it's down to Mark's attitude that, you know, when I needed something that someone was so happy to come and share and give me some of their valuable time. Um, I would definitely hope that in 20 years time, people are saying similar things about me. It would be you know, it wouldn't sort of earn me any money or make me successful, but it, it would be part of my success story, I think, if people were were saying that to me. So I think that is an important point. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's something I share as well. And there's a, a, a small development lender in the Northwest who who I basically set them up or help them get set up. Um, a family that were, were doing some private development loans through Avermore going back a few years. Um, you know, we'd, we'd moved to almost exclusively institutional models to the extent that even myself and Zahair, our families couldn't put money through uh, through loans anymore. And um, and so I said, well, look uh, to, to the chap, he's also called Mark. Um, I said, look, there, there's a family that I know they're looking that they, they want to put some money into lending. They, they want to put about five million into lending. Um, you know, he was working, I think, at a family office lender at the time. He wasn't being treated particularly well. And I just said, look, why don't you go and set something up yourself? And, um, you know, I think, what, two years on, uh, he's he's delighted. He couldn't couldn't be happier because he's made a great decision. He's a master of his own destiny. And the the family, that particular high net worth family, uh, are also help, happy. And uh, But in, in other ways, you know, if a, a, I put a, a broke, a, a new broker into uh, into an insurance business to help uh, put them together so that they could uh, they could expand their secured lending uh, offering. You know, it's it's small things like that, isn't it? That that you do for people, pe putting people together. And I think you know, obviously, it sounds like you, you there's something you do all the time as well. Um, yeah. we, 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 it's a small market. It's a small world, and you've just got to help. You know, we're, we're here to help each other out, right? That's sure. that, that's the priority. Yeah. Um. And listen, uh, in terms of so in terms of tab, you know, how many of you were there when you started it? I, I remember uh, when you you brought Nick Russell on board in the early days, but you know, was it just you to start with? Yeah, and then you know, one. You're up to your 40 year people now. Uh, it was just yeah. you. Yeah, one. In fact, I've been. We've got a really strong marketing team, and they've been asking me to look back through the history of all my companies and more recently um, the history of Tab. And I went back through my phone. Um, don't have that many pictures from the beginning of West One because we didn't all carry pictures around, uh, cameras around in our pockets. Um, but I do have a lot of pictures on the tab journey, and I was quite headstrong about documenting the journey um, of starting a fractional ownership business. Um, and, um, you know, I've got pictures of one, then two, then three, then four, then five, and then we moved office, and then, you know, five to 10, and then moving office again and going from 10 to 20. Um, and you know the people that are still here of which is a lot of them because we try to keep everybody that we really value um it's kind of just interesting seeing them all come on that journey with me but it literally starts with you going it, back to the days of my first company registrations and west one included it's like right what's the name what are we going to do what's our message and um 
as well as wanting to do fractional ownership and working really hard on how that might work, I self-funded the business. I had some money. I didn't think it was appropriate to raise money um, to start, although I had people throwing money at me right, left and centre. Um, I wanted to use my own money and it started with me. Um, you know, I didn't go to a creative agency and start getting logos done and drawn up, which you can, you can, you can be £2,500 in before you start. If you want to go down the sort of traditional path of creating a brand and your identity and everything. And literally, I said, I want to do, le- I want to, I'm going to do lending and property again. I'm sort of, I'm back in the game. I don't want to call it bridging for you or loans loans house or something like that i want it to be much more broad and if i can i want to have a three-letter word um so i started literally tapping three-letter words into my keyboard and i've got you know all sorts of weird and wonderful three-letter words i thought could this work could this work could this work um and then i stumbled across tab and the idea of tab and what it meant to me at the times um you know put a loan on your tab like an old bar bill um, and also investor could build up a tab of investments with us and borrowers could build up a tab of loans um, and it kind of in a split second I made the decision that it was going to be called tab and just before I finished I put a full stop at the end and I thought you know what looks a bit like a logo went through a few uh, fonts and um, it was just me on my own in my lounge um, sort of playing around with with that and then you know, I was sort of thinking about how can I add value to bridging loans if I'm going to do this again. And I was talking to someone, I said, look, I just want to be clear and simple. I want to be, you know, lending in black and white. It's just a legal agreement that's written on white paper with black ink. And if and they were like, well, that sounds like your strap line, lending in black and white. So it became tab lending in black and white. And, um, you know, then it was the case of hitting the phones and talking to people and telling them you're back and you register a company you register a web domain you get your email account sorted you know a lot of that stuff you can do on your own and these sort of barriers to entry even for a lending business look I get I was super experienced I had a good name and a reputation and a phone book to die for if you're starting a bridging loan business um but it still was intense you know the amount of work start putting my first pitch decks together my first broker presentations, my first investor list of people that I could talk to and start trying to put meetings in and, and tell them about what I'm planning to do. And um, the answer to your long-winded answer to your question is one. That's how many people were there when I started. <laughs> well, I, 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 in lots of ways, you've you made my life a lot easier because you've, you've talked about the journey and how you, how you got set up uh, without me even having to ask. Uh, or <laughs> yeah. So yeah. uh, I, either either I've done an amazing job as a host or you've done an amazing job as a guest. And I think I'd, I'm going to give you the credit here, Duncan. Thank I think you, you. you've done a, a, a really, a, you've, given, you've, you've made my life very easy. So I, I appreciate that. Um, I guess early days, uh, early days of Tab. Um, and I think actually you did, you, you know, you, you're quite, I think you are quite, I, I think you're quite good at marketing. I think you're quite smart at marketing in a way that people in our industry are generally not good at. But people in property and, and specialist finance aren't very good at marketing and promoting themselves. And I think you've always you've always been very good at that. You punched, and I think we do too. But I think you've always punched well above your weight. And so, you know, you had the idea to do a podcast uh, at the at that the FP show, which is I think probably one of the first times we met. Um, and and I thought that was I thought that was genius at the time. And you, you you've done a really good job um, of putting yourselves out there. Um, do you still have the Do you still have the Land Rover Defender? 
uh, I think that was that was one of your marketing uh, yeah one of your marketing tools. I mean, wasn't that- yeah, I mean, that podcast, but I mean, I obviously tried to stay up to speed with the direction of travel. I thought podcasting was interesting. Um, I wanted to separate it at the time from my day job. I thought, you know, in a similar way to how you're interviewing me now, I felt it would be good for my personal development to talk to people that I liked and I valued their opinion about things that I probably wouldn't talk to them about in my Um, capacity as the CEO of TAB. Um, So identical to what you're doing. I wanted it to be interesting. I love cars. I always felt like I missed out on an opportunity with cars and um, I decided to call it DefenderCast. And I wanted in my head, I was going to be live streaming and I could take the podcast to you rather than guests having to come to me. Um, so the idea is I'd drive over in the Defender and we could stream live from the back of the Defender. Now that is not a simple task. Um, it's a lot, it's a, you know, it's a lot easier to do now than it was the sort of four or five years ago when I was talking about it. Um, but we did do a few episodes where I parked on my drive and had a camera crew come and wire up the whole Defender with mics and cameras. Um, and I did a kind of whole season of meeting interesting people and I absolutely loved it. Um, I was well out of my comfort zone. I'd never kind of presented or hosted a show of any description, um, but I got more, I sort of felt like I got better at it. Um, you know, I didn't come here to talk to you with any preparation whatsoever. You know, Lynn has been saying to me, you know, don't forget you got the podcast, podcast, like, it's fine, I'll, I'll deal with it when it comes up. So I think that it's helped me a lot having been shoved in front of the camera so many times. Um, but it became tab you when we started tab we want to you know part of what katrina wanted to do is have an education channel wanted to be able to give free value back to the audience and she said look the podcast is not very tab why don't we rebrand it tab and make it part of tab university um you've got a following on youtube you've got a following on 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 apple spotify with downloads and listens let's leverage that and i was very very happy to see it go off to a good use um but already you know bnc who i was a new startup lender bridging commercial was seen to be you know a very popular outlet in the space and they wanted to talk to me about DefenderCast, and i was like well let's talk about um tab and they're, they're saying well we'd rather talk about DefenderCast." so that actual podcast at the show which i convinced them to pay for a booth and let me live podcast throughout the day um was actually DefenderCast. um and it was um, sponsored by Tab, um, sort of bringing it all back round to how your podcast is is going now. And it was an amazing opportunity. And I met you on that day and I met several others of people that I just didn't, you know, I wasn't going to pay for a stand. I didn't really have that much to talk to. We didn't have literature and brochures and we weren't ready to go and sort of take a stand at the event. But to have Tab up in lights um, was really, really powerful. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I walked in in a hoodie. I sat in my little booth um all day just chatting to people for half an hour with their full time and attention um and i loved it um so that became tab you and constantly looking for ways to leverage um things that might be a bit different or a bit wacky um, a bit disruptive all the while not to sort of be um sort of in your face too much in you know in the wrong way no but it's uh, uh no that's uh, that's um no that's awesome um let's talk about commercial property for a second um so in terms of in terms of commercial property obviously you've got um 
you're now offering fractional ownership. I think there was a was there a hotel investment that you had. Um, yeah, it, you, you yeah. were you were promoting recently. Um, as as someone who's a, a quite an experienced commercial property investor in my own right, um, you know, I think that at the moment there's some great there are some great opportunities out there. I think that you know we are kind of we I I would say we're almost maybe in a generational buying opportunity um you know I, I guess whether that's true or not we'll, we'll know from the test of time well um, it, well it would it would definitely be true depending on when you sell well this, this is probably this is probably right yeah um you know I, I myself i'm currently under offer to buy a really nice um office park in in southern surrey for you know a 13 percent initial yield and offer 200 less than 200 pounds a square foot when resi resales are 650 quid a foot plus so from my perspective i feel like i'm i'm getting a pretty good deal there um but you're by the 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 the, the opportunity you put forward that i saw uh which i think was a travel lodge or as a uh, premier in travel you know lodge. that that would have been a, a a more of a long income type play uh what was the take up like on the from from the investors and are you now are you now seeing a a, a lot of demand for people who missed out on that opportunity to 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 deploy yeah. more capital, yeah, I mean there, there, there's um, a couple of interesting things there. Look, first and foremost, it's a big shift for those that have supported bridging loans um, up until this point. There's a kind of a lot of hurdles to get over. Yes, uh, we've deployed a lot of capital, we've recovered a lot of it as we did. We have an impeccable track record, um, but we're convincing people to do sort of five year plus investments rather than one year investments, typically at a slightly lower return than you would get on a bridging loan. Um, there, there's a different, completely different risk profile. Um, some things are better, some things are worse. And depending on what your appetite for risk is, you want different things. Um, first and foremost, I mean, the take up's been unbelievable. I mean, the, the feedback that we've had is that if you can own um, a high street brand like that for £50,000 without having any debt whatsoever, without having to deal with tenants, without having to speak to a lawyer, do surveys, um, collecting rent, repairs and maintenance. Um, you can just own your share of it. It means you can spread your money much further across multiple investments and take away the headache. Um, so we've had an overwhelming response. We actually bought two travel lodges at the same time. We're completing on both of them tomorrow on the 31st of the month. Um, and we will have something like 50 investors invested in different ranges with the smallest having invested a thousand pounds so owning a very tiny share and the largest almost half a million pounds um, into one of those particular assets. Um, I, I do believe it's revolutionary. I do believe that there should be a different way to buy property other than debt. That literally the only option right now is that you put down a deposit and you take debt for the duration of the term. Um, so we're buying a property that's got 18 years worth of income and we're buying at over a nine and a quarter percent yield for an asset that has traded at six, uh, around six percent for the last 15 years. Um, as you say, at a snapshot in time where these assets will will be trading somewhere between, you know, the levels that we're buying at and what they have previously, I think in a relatively short period of time. The main thing for me is that I don't want to sell those assets. So I'm trying to build a business that does something slightly different to the private investor model in loans, which is every loan we write this year redeems next year if we do a good job, um, which means people need to keep searching for new opportunities all the time. This is the other extreme, which is you invest in a property. It lives on the tab platform forever. 
Um, in my head, you will walk past the building. It will have a tab plaque on the outside. You scan it with your phone and it will tell you what the live price is to invest in that building. Um, from a Travel Lodge Hotel to HSBC Tower and Canary Wharf, um, you will be able to dip in and out of different investments like a stock market for real estate. And so, so second, so basically you want to create rather than you'll never want to sell the whole asset. You'll just want to create a secondary market for uh yeah. for, for those for those assets what what would that look like though using the i think the travelodge will probably you know can remain let you'll you'll stay it will stay yeah. let to travelodge for as long as they can they can make money out of it you use the hsbc tower in that situation you probably end up with the uh, refurbishment costs and and things like that which will need to be funded probably a bit more a, a bit more challenging um yeah. how uh, how would you how do you how do you manage the how how would you manage say capex and things like that in in a situation like yeah so the stepping stones right one good deal at a time as i talked about earlier yeah. in my career so for these travel lodges what i've said to people is that after five years we will sell these assets if all the other things that i'm telling you are going to happen don't happen in five years time we will sell these assets on the open market um, and I believe everyone will have made a very good return over five years and they will make another good return on capital upside. Um, I feel sure that people are parking their capital in a very, very safe place. And if I don't get the, the secondary market off the ground and we don't have liquidity, we're not relying, we're not betting people's money on it. So that's first and foremost on these two properties. I've committed that after five years, if things, if you're unable to trade out, if anybody is stuck in it and not able to trade out, we will sell it on the open market. So I've got this big vision for how it will look in the future. Um, but at the moment, I'm mindful of the fact that I'm trying to sell a new product that doesn't really exist. Um, so I've had to make some changes. Um, to answer your next question, there's a kind of few different levels of I'm, I want to focus heavily on long term sustainable income uh, because I think it's something that people struggle to access that they should be able to. So most um, most people are buying Tesco investments, um, not because they don't think it's a good investment, but because it's it's very competitive and typically big ticket sizes requires experience and b borrowing power. Um, so, you know, if you're saving up for your future and you want to get on the property ladder and ride the wave over a long period of time, um, I want those those assets to become more accessible to people. So um, that's kind of my vision. But there are also value add transactions that we look at all the time. Um, so we could buy a piece of land and build a house and sell it for a profit. That would mean no income along the way, uh, but a bigger capital gain on exit. Um, I just don't want to become a property developer overnight to make the product work. I want to buy good long term income. Um, and as you said, there is a huge, huge opportunity now where if we buy sensibly and we don't leverage ourselves up with debt, as well as being a debt provider for my entire career, I think there should be another way. Um, so we could boost returns by leveraging some of these assets, but that is not on my agenda at all, because the downside is that what I've learned throughout my career is expensive debt can kill any deal. Um, and everyone that thought they had cheap debt before is now finding out that if they want to hang on to that property and they don't want to sell it at a discount, that it could cost them double or more to hold it for the next three or five years. So using the lessons that I've learned, um, I want to create something that is appealing and has a high probability of being successful. So the only other thing I'll add quickly is that we, from the rental income, um, so we have 100 people own 1% of the property. 
Um, we collect the rent, we pay the agent, so we have a net rent. We then set aside some money every single month into what I've always called the kitty, but it's like a service charge pot for want of a better word. Um, so there's cash reserves going into build up for the property. So year after year, if we own it for 20 years, there'll be a big cash pot. Um, some properties will require more of the rental income to go into that pot and some will require less. Um, and the property, and when you own 1% of that property, you own 1% of the property and its cash reserves. And I think that gives a higher chance that that property will be tradable and will be liquid if you're investing in a property that has a tenant, that has proven income, that has cash in the bank. Um, so that's how we combat um, that on a much, much smaller scale. And obviously, HSBC Tower wouldn't be a great buy now and would struggle um, to another level to sell that building right now if they had to come mm. to market. It's almost got zero value, um, as crazy as that sounds. It's the amount it costs to bring that sort of building into the modern world with um, everything that you need to do to get to Cat A plus and to grade A offices. I mean, it, it wouldn't work let alone converting it to resi or anything else. So that's the value that we bring to customers on the tab property side. How do they know whether going on right move, whether this commercial property is good over that commercial property? I, I've looked at commercial properties that are struggling to trade at 50% of what they traded at before um, for a snapshot in time. Do I think they were high before? Yes, um, in hindsight. Do I think that they are low now? Almost impossible. I, I drive past buildings, Mike, at the moment, and I think there is this is the cheapest I will be able to buy that property for the rest of my life. That's what I feel sure of. £100 a foot, £200 a foot for a good office is is um, is not going to come around again. No, no, uh, I think there's definitely, like I said, I think there's a, a great buying opportunity. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, putting my own business, putting myself in your shoes as a business owner, um, I, I talk a lot about being focused or, or, or maintaining a, a singular focus within 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 the businesses that I'm involved in. Um, at the moment, I'm involved in five different businesses, and I'm my my attention spread too thin. Um, is there is there a danger of creating a, a additional business lines that your attention and your focus on the parts of the business that maybe still have some way to run in terms of development that you can be you could end up. Um, should we say your attention could be a, a, a little bit sent in too many directions? I mean, how do you how are you combating the um, the dangers of the the sort of the bright yeah, shiny I mean, object syndrome dangers and and how do you how do you how do you try to make sure that you keep focused on all the or, or making sure everything's doing you're you're, you're applying your best focus to each side. You'll of, hear of you'll hear the same things from me over and over again. Surround yourself with good people first and foremost. You know, one thing I learned early on in my career is that I'm good at ideas. I'm not the person to execute. Doesn't mean I'm not capable. It just means I'm not the best at it. So the people in my senior management team, we've got ex-JP Morgan, ex-Berwin Leighton Paisner, um, ex-Credit Swiss. Um, they are tasked with execution. They're not tasked with coming in with big ideas and um, pitching to the board about buying a bank or some of the other things that I've done over the last couple of years. Um, their sole focus is on to test me whether this is a good idea, whether the business is in good shape um, to do it, and then to execute. Um, so completing the funding round that we did at the end of last year, raised £300 million, um, was not an, a mean feat. Um, you know, it was intense from due diligence to negotiations 
um, an execution is as hard to execute as a deal as I've ever been involved with. Private securitization run by NatWest um, markets. I mean, it, it was a monster deal. Um, if it relied on me to execute, um, it wouldn't have got there, to be frank. Needed the whole team to pull in the right direction, work to a deadline, understand the size of the prize and be rewarded for doing so. Um, and I see, um, look, I, do, I do understand the question and I've also involved in several other businesses. And one thing I did when I went away at, at Christmas was I, I, I said, right, what, what does this year, what does 2024 look like for me? Um, and the decision I made was that I wanted to step down from my extracurricular activities. I mean, I'm involved in more than five other businesses, which I've had a you know, strong hand in starting or investing in and sitting on the board and in some cases in weekly meetings. And I decided that there are, it's not all or nothing, but could I make some improvements? Would I be more productive? And I said, I'm standing down from everything else that is outside of the tab. Um, tab is tab and it's Halo Capital Partners and it is the finance company. And those three businesses need my full time and attention. And if I'm and if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to relinquish some responsibility on other businesses that I really do enjoy and that you know are a relief a release for me sometimes um, outside of Tab. But I felt sure that was the right decision. I came back at the beginning of Jan and I stepped down from the board of several other businesses. Um, and you know it's a bit weird not having those other things to do. But I feel sure they're in good hands and that they've got good. Um, plans and a strategy to execute and I wanted to focus my time on TAB and talking about this particular product this is why TAB started um, you know without wanting to sound sort of grotesque I didn't building another um, bridging loan business wasn't all that exciting to me opening up real estate investments to everybody is actually a vision that genuinely keeps me awake at night and um, the size of the opportunity dwarfs anything else I've ever heard of, uh, any other business plan I've ever heard of. Um, you know, it's a proper kind of unicorn shot. It's uh, something that would be a lasting legacy. It would change the way that people invest in property, how to invest in it. And bridging loans became a way to me to start evidencing. I needed more money to build the tech. I didn't want to sell the business. Started to get some loan opportunities and I felt like this could really help. Now, when I'm launching fractional ownership investments, it's off the back of 400 million pounds of loans, um, a thousand plus investors that have gravitated to the platform. Um, you know, we've made a very, very strong profit every year. We've almost doubled our profits year on year on year. And I've been able to build a tech team and a marketing team and a finance team all with this vision in mind. Um, so that feels like less of a distraction, if you like. But there have been some things that have come along. Um, I mentioned buying a bank, I had an opportunity to buy a banking license and I presented to my board. I stayed up all night and I put a presentation together and I presented to my board and they said, no, 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 no. We're not doing it. We don't like it. We don't want to do it. And these are the reasons. And I said, I think you're wrong, um, but I wouldn't be asking you if I didn't value your opinion and therefore I'm going to ditch it. Um, and when it came to launching commercial mortgages, I did the same. I said, look, I think we're ready. Think we can get the funding i think we can use our, our new funding providers to leverage this is the idea um, this is where i think we sit in the market and i pitched to the board and they said love it love it love it love it love it and i said right execute um if you really think it's a good idea don't come back in a few months and say well it's this was the reason why we couldn't make it work 
if you don't believe it's a good idea, tell me now. If you don't think you can do this, tell me now. If you need more resource or more help or something that we don't have now, tell me along the way. But what I'm not going to do is it didn't work out because we didn't think of this and we didn't think of that. So that's how I do it. Yeah. Oh, listen, it, it's, it almost strikes me that, you know, you, you know, you, you had this sort of burning desire to offer fractional ownership of, you know, real estate opportunities for the man in the street, because that, that's, that, that's almost like the central business case for TAB. And it's sort of, you, it, it's, it's almost, it, it sounds to me like almost like the lending division is now, it's, it's one service offering, but it's not, it's not, it's not core to the future of, of TAB, at least as far as your vision is concerned. Is that a fair way of, of, of expressing yeah, it? Look, I think I'm super proud of TAB and the products that we offer in the market. And it gives us the opportunity to do things that are far greater than just staying still and having a successful and profitable business. Um, you know, the private equity um, firms and de the, de the debt funds and the credit funds um, and the banks that have backed us, I fully expect to back us all the way, um, which is, you know, currently we have a £208 million loan book. Our business plan on the lending side says we'll have a billion pound loan book by 2026. Um, I believe that we can do that and we've always hit every target that we set ourselves. Um, but what I'm definitely not saying is that's it. That's what we do. Don't talk to us about other things. Um, and one thing, you know, having had investors who have had good returns for so long, now that we have these institutional credit lines and it makes more sense for us to continue developing those relationships, we've now have a void of people that aren't getting as much product as they would like to. And it's kind of an obvious meeting of minds that this business now should start to now that you can buy property at 10% plus and you can um, pay investors returns commensurate to the types of returns they're used to in bridging loans, um, it feels like now's the time. Yeah, uh, well, I, I think particularly as well that you look at a lot of institutional investors, you know, they're, they're, fi they're facing long-term structural and strategic uh, requirements to sell commercial assets. So you do. There is an opportunity to pick up, as as I'm experiencing. There is a, a, a definitely a, a there isn't there hasn't been a better time for quite a long time to pick up kind of good quality assets at pricing that's genuinely sensible uh, and and executable. Uh, the, I think the one caveat is that the financing costs of those, the, the the financing costs at the moment for commercial term debt is high, uh, relative relatively speaking. Although in relative to the purchase prices, it's not, um, but and and that potentially serves as a bit of a barrier, or maybe can can drive a bit of reluctance. But in your case, it doesn't seem to be an issue because you're you're looking to do it all equity anyway. Yeah, and I, my thing is, let's club together and buy the property without the bank, and then we get all of the income. You know, mm -hmm. rather than the bank having first lien over the asset and all of the income until such time as they're paid back, and you can't accurately predict um, how much that cost of debt is going to be over the short, medium or long term. Um, you can accurately predict whether that building will continue to produce an income of some description. It might be a bit less or a bit more than you expected, um, but you're not going to end up with nothing if you buy the right assets and you're prepared to, to let them. So to me, if we buy a multi-let building and we're looking at something on the Holloway Road, you buy a multi-let building, um, and one of the tenants leaves and you don't have any debt. Worst case scenario is you thought you were going to get 8%, you actually get 4% for a few years. 
you find a new tenant, it goes back up to 8%. We're not under pressure to sell it. We don't have a mortgage lender breathing down our neck. Um, the price isn't fluctuating. We don't have to service the debt whilst it's there. We have cash reserves. We can tart the property up or we can do a marketing scheme or we can fix the roof if something comes up without having to go back to our investors. And if we own those buildings in 25 years time, we will look like heroes. Um, I feel sure of it. Um, and mm. I'm prepared to push the message out really, really, really hard, which is, you know, give it a go, invest in real estate, earn seven and a half percent, paid on a monthly basis, net of all fees and and um, service charges and, and everything. Um, and let us do the hard work for you. Give it a go, do five grand, 10 grand, 50 grand at a time. Um, and it's the size of the opportunity, Mike, that interests me. It's, you know, I can see myself walking around New York and, you know, adding a, an American property to my portfolio and, you know, adding commercial, residential and HMOs and some short incomes and long income. Um, I think, you know, to spread my money across to about a million pounds and I can spread it across 20 properties, I think I've got a better chance of not losing my money um, or accurately predicting my income. Um, than if I had one property with debt. And then if also if I need some of my money back, I can look in the market and see who's bidding. Mm. I might be able to release 25 grand without having to, buying and selling property is unbelievably clunky. It's almost embarrassing that you have to go through those steps, um, that you've got one lawyer arguing with another lawyer about a covenant from the 40s and surveyor pointing out things that another surveyor wouldn't and the land registry waiting for notices to be updated and, um, freeholders argue, you know, it, it's it's a nonsense. It's an absolute nonsense. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I couldn't agree more, especially the what six six percent or near six percent stamp duty that I'm going to have to pay on, on on the asset that I'm buying. You know, and and the fact that I'm waiting for, you know, I'm two months after applying for the searches, still waiting for my local search to come back. Listen, it, it, you you know I think we could have a we, we could probably bore quite a lot of people and talk about uh, and talk about the uh, the technical side of it, Duncan. I'm sure, but the reality is that that you're absolutely right. The the in this day and age in the 21st century that it, that it is so difficult and so painful to to transact on a property is is embarrassing. And I, I like to think that we're quite innovative in this country in lots of ways. But it's a real indictment on it's a real indictment on on the real estate sector that um, that the buying and selling real estate remains as um, as painful as it is. Not if I've got anything to do about it. Well, yeah. Well, listen, there's uh, we we can continue that particular uh, stream of conversation offline. Um, want to start to wind down, but I, I'd I'd like to know really what's your what's your thoughts about uh, about the future of of Tab? What is the future? What are the next five years, next ten years of Tab look like? I think we've touched on a lot of it. I think, you know, navigating our way out of the turbulent market is fundamental to uh, what we do next. You know, I'm obsessed about protecting investor capital. I don't want, um, you know, I, th I think it's dealing with the difficult things first. Um, look, I've talked a lot about my big ideas and where I want to go and how I see the future. But I come to work every day I, on a lot of occasions. I'm the first person in. Um, I'm not always the last person to go because I like to spend a lot of time with my children in the afternoons if I can on a Monday and a Wednesday and a Friday um, because balance of life is really, really important to me. But first and foremost, making sure um, that I don't have that awkward moment when I have to stand up and say I wasn't watching and something happened that I didn't agree with. So constantly searching to just get better at what we do. 
Um, I know I've talked a lot about new products, as I said, but you know, we don't we have not cracked bridging loans. We're not the best bridging loan lender in the market. We don't write the most business. We don't have the most efficient form of capital. So, you know, it's constantly just trying to improve that, I guess, is the most important thing. And I think if you get the basics right, then everything else will follow. Um, I don't have any desire to exit the business. Um, I've been there before. I've learned that most people who have got income want capital. Most people that have got capital want income. Um, and what I'm searching for is both so that I can continue to enjoy my life and build the business. Um, you know, it might not be fractional ownership. It will pivot. Something will come along. A new technology um, will come along. Um, something I'm super interested in at the moment is AI. Um, and actually using it to my advantage. Uh, I use ChatGPT on a daily basis. I'm a paid customer. I use ChatGPT for. Uh, I sat in a, a meeting before with some of my colleagues and they were saying, well, how would we find out this and how would we find out that? And I went on to ChatGPT and I answered all of their questions in 60 seconds um, with links of where it came from and resources and more information, drilling down into detail. And I think if you don't, embrace this type of technology you will get left behind um, and also one thing that we do differently from almost every other lender i know in the market is that we have built our own proprietary tech which is unbelievably good it gives us access to real-time data um, and it's not a kind of shiny front end on what everybody else does it is completely different end-to-end um, from sourcing to completion to loan management to collections it does our HR functions it does our task management um, and I can report on an infinite number of tasks and things that are going on within the business and we are busy trying to integrate um, AI into different parts of it for the benefit of our staff to make their life easier better access to information the speed of it um, and the accuracy of it and for our customers to communicate with us in different ways um, and also to unlock things that we don't know about, like reading our data um, and providing us with insights that now we have a substantial amount of data, it's time to put it to use. Um, and I think one thing you'll see from TAB over the next kind of six weeks, six months is that we are leading the way on integrating AI into our technology. So to give you one quick example, Mike, we have um, a button now in our platform that will read evaluation. Um, and it will summarise that valuation and test it against our lending criteria and highlight any um, anything that it thinks we should be aware of. So, you know, it's reading valuations, testing what date they were, how far away the valuer is from the property, if the comps are in date, if they match, um, if the um, any sort of outliers, any comments that are made in the valuation should be made aware of. Um, so I can, you know, get an inquiry with a valuation attached to it. I think we are ahead of any other lender in 60 seconds. And it's that sort of thing that I want to be able to gain those 1%. Oh, and I think my point is that I'm hoping you'll see from TAB these sorts of innovations that are part of our core um, strategy is just not to sit back and watch and see what others do. It's do we think this is a value? Um, do we do we feel it's worth investing time and energy in it? So another example is our lending criteria has been loaded into a large language model. Um, all of our lending criteria across all products and anybody in the business can ask it a question about do we do this? Do we do that? Uh, and it will give you an instant um, and accurate answer way beyond um, anybody's any one person's knowledge.
um, that system is up to speed and we'll continue to develop things like that um, into the platform. And um, I think that's one area you should watch out for with Tab about kind of how we do things. Yeah, yeah, I guess you because I, I, it's interesting hearing you talk about it, and I think again we we can we can bore a lot of our listeners with the with the ins and outs of it. But I, I'm in the last year, I've you know I've learned how to code as a hair's learned how to code, and we we're sort of looking at how we can implement that into the business. Uh, and so we're probably not as advanced as you are in terms of the the, the building out the packages uh, that we want. But we've built a number of prototypes. But one of the things it was interesting hearing you talk about the uh, about the valuation uh, the, the valuation side of things because I guess um, I, I was actually going to do something very similar. Uh, but with um, monitoring surveyor reports, where, whereby you, yeah you can take the text from the monitoring surveyor's reports and and summarise those. But actually, what what I'm gonna what I'm gonna try and do is I'm actually gonna try and take all the monitoring surveyor's reports we've had historically, and effectively tr- uh, using the photos from the monitoring surveyor's reports, teach a large language large language model so that when you show uh, pictures of the show pictures of the site, you can you, it can determine with a certain degree of accuracy and that will get better over time how far advanced the site is and you compare that the, the photos in the site with the amount of drawdowns today or the cost to complete and so that we can accurately with with say half a dozen photos from a site we can establish what the remaining cost to complete is going to be um and so and actually ironically i don't you know although it'll take some time to develop i don't think that uh, the, the technology already exists for that um to do that and i think it's going to be a real a real game changer for us and 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 I suppose others in 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 our space. So yeah, I I, I think um I think we, we're going to have to book a, a long lunch or a long dinner sure. uh, to talk about these things because I think we, we've got uh, there's a lot to to pick your brain on. It was interesting hearing you talk about not wanting to be sold. It, I I I it's a question I often ask people from both the lending and broker community. Um, I wasn't surprised. That you said that you wouldn't want to sell the business because I think that your experience after exiting or, or exiting financially West One uh, was wasn't necessarily that great, and I guess you very much like to be the master of your own destiny. Looking at it on the other side, are you? Would you be open? I mean, it sounds like you were looking at the opportunities to acquire a banking license. Would you be open to acquiring other businesses, either yeah. direct competitors or looking at vert, you know businesses that could vertically integrate within 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 your own? Yeah, I mean, it's very, very high up on my agenda. I mean, I've got, you know, I've got a very, very high bar set and there's, you know, there are only two ways to get there or through organic growth or acquisition. Um, I'm experienced at acquiring businesses and disposing of them. I feel like I know what to watch out for. Um, And the short answer is absolutely yes. And we are in conversations with um, some brokerages that we'd be super keen to partner with um, through acquisition or merger of some description. Um, I want to be able to offer our customers a much broader um, product offering and we're not the best lender for everyone who wants to borrow money but we are good at building relationships and being trustworthy and transparent about what we do Um, and I think we could add a huge amount of value to a business that's gone as far as they can go and requires some investment or requires um, you know things change as well the longer a company goes on business partners want to go in different directions um, customer value changes um, the amount of capital required to do things changes and I'd say more than that we are very acquisitive and um, I'd like to be seen as somebody um, as I have been that that would help first and foremost um, that I would never 
um, give away information to the wrong person. I would never sort of stray beyond the realms of what I think is fair and reasonable. Um, and I would be shocked if we talked again in 18 months and we hadn't made some sort of acquisition. Yeah, well, that's that sounds very interesting. And to be honest with you, it, it, particularly within the lending space, you know, every time we talk about the FP show, we talk about we can talk about the NSFBX. So every time you go to one of these lending roadshows, you know, there are there's hundred plus lenders that all do the same thing, you know, all all fighting over a relatively small piece of the pie. Um, it, it just it's it's been a long it's been a long standing view of mine, and I think I think it it will eventually come true that. The, the, the specialist lending space is ripe for consolidation and that, you know, we, we will see a lot more of the lending being done by a lot fewer lenders in five years, five years from now. And a lot of that will just come about through critical mass and that critical mass will come through acquisitions or, or people being marginalised or sidelined. Yeah, so, and capital flowing back through the city and, you know, better businesses being more investable. Um, you know, I, th I think our technology alone is of value, um, but what we'd rather do is leverage that side of the business and um, offer particular bits of the, the platform to others to help us improve it dramatically rather than sort of sell out and think about what to do next. I, I don't mm. think my work at TAB will ever be done. Um, whilst it's profitable and it's growing and it's exciting, what else would I do? Um, and where there are businesses that come along that could, you know, one and one could make more than two, for instance, plugging our technology into them um, and improving efficiencies or reducing the cost of capital across their, their loan book or, um, you know, a number of other things. Um, I'd be super keen to do that. And I think as capital starts to flow, as, as specialist lending gets closer, to high street lending. Um, high street lending will pretty much disappear in my view. I mean, the, the high street is only really four banks and they're harder and harder to deal with um, than they've ever been if you're sort of man on the street as far as leverage and, um, and ease of actually getting a loan out of them. Um, and everyone else really sort of non-bank lenders like um, sort of the um, challenger banks and non-bank lenders are all sort of getting much closer and closer together. Um, so I, sh I share your view on that, actually. Yeah, well, it, well I guess time will tell. Uh, and certainly we, we'll, we can talk about that. And again, another thing we can we can we can chat about when we when we do that dinner. Um, yeah. I guess last last couple of questions. And yeah, we we have managed to get almost the full two hours, Duncan. So uh, clearly, <laughs> clearly, uh, clearly we were able to keep keep both of our attention going. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask you about people who've been influential. You mentioned Mark Goldberg and you mentioned Dad. I mean, would you say they've been the most important figures in in your career, or is, or are there any other people you'd like to kind of credit and and and, and acknowledge as being important factors and figures in, no, in, do you know in, what? in your I, life and career? No, I mean my answer is slightly different to most that I hear, um, which is that I try to take as little bits from as many people as possible, rather than sort of emulate or be influenced by any one particular person so um you know i mentioned it to you before when we talk about reading books and i've started to listen to rather than read way more books than i have done throughout my life um i typically find there's sort of one or two things that really resonate with me um, and that will adjust my way of thinking or approaching something um there's no i've never sort of come across anyone so groundbreaking that i need to listen to and watch everything they've ever said and try to kind of copy them but 
I will take something from almost every conversation, not always positive. Sometimes it's, I would never do that. I would never do it that way. Um, other times it would be, oh, I should incorporate that into my patter or my thinking. Um, uh, so the short answer is probably no. Um, there's sort of, there's no, no one, I think, um, you know, there, there have been some people that have been constants throughout my life and I don't think they would be constants, um, you know, if we didn't get on um, as well as we do. I mean, I've worked with Stephen Wasserman, my business partner, for a very, very long time, longer than I know most business partners have worked together. And I feel sure we will continue to do so um, for the rest of our careers um, whenever it's appropriate to do so. And he's definitely my confidant. Um, it's sort of all these weird and wacky ideas. And I think one of the main reasons is because we're so different. We challenge each other. We come at things from completely other um, ends of the scale. As I said, you know, he went to university, got a degree, went traveling. I went straight to work and we sort of carried on on this theme um, for a very, very long time. Um, but if we both agree on something, it's because we've come at it from opposite ends and we've met in the middle and therefore it's a kind of a better chance of success. And also, it's really important that if if Stephen put his foot down and said, I think it's a stupid idea and you shouldn't do it, I would put more store in um, about more value in what he was saying, because I know that he's got good intentions and it comes from the right place and he knows me. And so, you know, I've got some very, very, very close friends. Um, you know, Stephen being one and my friend Chris and my friend Lee, who I can talk to about anything. And I and I think people lack that sort of sounding board. Um, from what I've seen they you know too much of the disruptive and not enough of the who should I take advice from um, so that's a kind of roundabout answer. No, uh, listen it's uh, I think it's a great answer and uh, you know appreciate the uh, the acknowledgements that you've given um, and you know not only have, have people had a big impact on, on your life but I think you probably had a, a even more and more profound impact on a lot more people's lives so um, you know Full, full credit to you anyway for for recognizing those people. Last question, uh, which is the is the, usually the question we close the show, um, and this will be quite interesting because I guess you, despite being still relatively young, you've ex you've experienced a lot and you've done a lot and you've had a lot of success over this period. Um, but if you were to say anything to your I don't know your 16, 17 year old self, if you were to give yourself some advice, some self talk, you know what would you say to yourself and why? you know there's not a single thing that I would change um, I, I think this kind of sounds like a radical answer um, and I have been asked this question before um, even the most catastrophic mistakes and things that really I just wouldn't want to talk about or publicize again I, I would not change for the world and if anything I'd sort of <clears throat> you know thinking about who would be listening and how they would take this even from like my mum to ex-business partners and stuff I mean I'd, I'd say even lean into it more the um the disruptive nature to challenge anybody at any time to be yourself to be um all of the things we've talked about Mike to be honest with you um if anything I, I still see myself holding back a little bit wanting to um keep the ship steady and I think that's possibly more because I've got more responsibility now and personally responsible for over over 200 million pounds which is not a small amount of money um, and I do feel personally responsible but you know when I talk about other business ventures and ideas that I've got perhaps I'm, I'm more reserved now than I have been at times in my career um, I would say you know JFDI just fucking do it 
Um, you know, don't look back, don't be scared, don't get put off. Um, what's the worst that can happen? And I've continued to hone that that throughout my career. Um, but I think that there's room for more of it, to be honest with you. Well, that's uh, JFDI. Just fucking do it. I love that. Uh, I love that mantra. And uh, yeah, I think we could all do with a bit more of that sometimes. Uh, less planning, less talking, more doing. Um, Duncan Krieger, thank you so much. Uh, you've, been, you've been a great guest, uh, very inspirational and um, certainly got me wanting to spend more time with you and talking to you. And so if I've sure. got that feeling, hopefully uh, most of our audience is going to feel the same way. Um, inevitably, there will be some of our audience who will be sufficiently inspired that will want to reach out to you and uh, and uh, and get in touch and, and talk to you uh, further. How can sure. someone get in, how can someone get in touch with you? What's uh, are there any particular social media channels that you'd like people to contact you on, or are there any particular preferred routes of of contact? Yeah, it's so you funny. Like? Just you just reminded me, Mike. I went on a podcast um, a couple of years ago now from like a young guy who I know really really well, super successful, and he asked me this question at the end, and I gave my email address, and he said, "Are you a dinosaur? Who uses email now? Just how are people going to DM you? What's your handle on this and that?" And I just had a flashback of that when you said it. Um, I, I think it won't be difficult to find me. I'm quite public on social media in that I really do enjoy, um, you know, firstly, it's free. And I think people don't make enough um, of being able to use these free tools around them. Um, Instagram typically is where I hang out um, more for sort of posting on my stories. Um, it's kind of short. It doesn't live as long um, and it's super interesting. Um, and I find, you know, it's good for like my hobbies and things that I'm interested in. Uh, but that's where I kind of document my life. So if anybody's interested in that, it's just at Duncan Krieger, my full name. Um, otherwise, possibly email because I have help monitoring my email and I make sure I get back to everybody. I mean, unfortunately, LinkedIn, as good as it is, um, things get lost in the ether of do I want to build a new website and do I want to employ a new member of staff? Um, kind of get spammed um, there. So I find it hard to have a meaningful conversation. I normally jump straight offline, um, but I don't think it'll be difficult to reach out. And I would, I've got plenty of time. Um, I'm super busy, but I've got plenty of time to talk to people and expand my um, my knowledge base. So I'm happy for people to reach out um, by email, which is dk at tabhq.com um, or Duncan at Duncan Krieger at Instagram. Right, well, uh, well, there you have it, folks. Uh, that, that, that's how you can get hold of uh, Duncan. If uh, for any reason you haven't blocked me yet on across social medias, I'm at <laughs> property underscore funder. Uh, so that's a good opportunity for you to to block me uh, or mute me. Uh, but if you are crazy enough and you want to follow me, uh, you can also follow those links and you can follow me that way. Um, Duncan, it's been an absolute honour and a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very so much, much for your time, Mike. I appreciate you giving me the platform and um, I feel sure that we'll continue to converse. We we 100% will. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm going to now have to buy you lunch and dinner and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll continue the conversation in a more private setting. So um, uh, without further ado, Duncan, thanks very much. Uh, it's been amazing and we'll speak soon. Take care. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye.